Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg. My guest today is Dr. Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Minna has argued for months that a key to stopping the spread of COVID-19 is the use of at-home rapid antigen tests that can detect whether someone has the virus. Thank you for joining me. Let's start with the basics. What is a rapid COVID test and how does it work? Sure. Well, a rapid COVID test is uh, is as it sounds, which is a test that looks for the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, and gives a result rapidly. So there's a few different types of rapid tests. The main one, the one that uh, uh, that uh, myself and others have primarily been discussing, are what we call a rapid antigen test, and this is a test that essentially is a pregnancy test-like test. It's it shows one line if you're negative, and two lines if you're positive. And it can be done really simply. It can be done at home. It can be done at work, at school, uh, or in the doctor's office. And it's essentially you take a swab, you put the swab into a, a little tube, and then you drop a paper strip. Uh, it looks like a paper strip into that tube, or you take a few drops from that tube and put it onto a little paper strip, just like a pregnancy test. Um, so that's a rapid antigen test. It, it gives you results and uh, takes about 30 seconds to perform and then gives you results in about 10 minutes or so. And is it a saliva test? Do you put it in your nose like you do with the PCR tests? How do you do it? Yeah, so there, um, there are two different, uh, you, you could do both saliva or a nasal swab. And so the, 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 the vast majority of them are, are using sort of a front, like a self-collection nasal swab. This is a swab that you just kind of do yourself you swab the front of your nose, maybe a little bit uh, up into, into your nose, it kind of tickles some people. Um, but ultimately, uh, that's all it is, it's self-collection. And then you just put it uh, into either, you put it straight onto the test or you just put it into a tube first and then into onto the test. And uh, so it looks and feels, it's not one of the deep, you know, it's very rarely one of the deep um, nasopharyngeal swabs that a lot of people have received at this point. So just to be clear, this is something that you can do yourself in your house. You don't need a nurse to process the test or collect the swab or anything like that. Oh yeah, they're super simple. They're they're um, uh, if you can figure out how to open your computer and push a button, you can figure out how to use one of these rapid tests. They are they are so simple. Sorry, not to confuse people, there's no computers involved. <laughs> it's just a, it's truly just a simple swab in your nose onto the test. Um, and there's also newer ones too. So that's the rapid antigen test, which has been uh, misunderstood to the point where it's become controversial, but really it shouldn't be controversial. There's very clear use uh, of it. Um, there's also a rapid test for COVID uh, and SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is a molecular test. It's like an at-home uh, or it's essentially an at-home PCR type of test. You can do it yourself. Super simple. Again, you just use a swab, stick it into a tube, but then there's a step where you put that tube, uh, into a little device, or you put the swab into a little device and it takes like a half hour instead of 15 minutes. Uh, and then usually gives you a positive negative readout. Um, so there's, there's actually both. There's like almost PCR grade or laboratory grade tests now becoming available potentially for at-home use. They're so simple that anyone could use them at home, uh, but they, they've they all been kind of roadblocked by regulatory um, barriers. 
So I know you mentioned how simple they are, but how accurate are these rapid tests? And how does that accuracy compare with, for example, the PCR, which has been considered the gold standard in COVID testing? Yeah, so accuracy has to be viewed in light of what you're trying to detect. Um, And so this is where they have been fully misunderstood. And I would say also the PCR has been fully misunderstood uh, by, by most. And uh, for public health purposes, well, I should say for diagnostic purposes, when I put on my doctor hat and, uh, and I, I work in a hospital uh, as part of my job, the other part of my job is public health, epidemiology and immunology. But when I put on my doctor hat and I have a patient coming to me who says, doc, uh, I wasn't feeling well uh, the last few days or last week, do I have COVID or was it because of COVID? Uh, I want the most sensitive test I can get. My goal there isn't to stop this patient from spreading. My goal is to diagnose this patient. So time isn't really my priority, like how fast I get a diagnosis. It's not my priority. It's diagnosing to let the patient know, is this why you felt bad? Um, And there you want PCR quality. You want a PCR test that's going to tell you, do I have any evidence of having this virus in me? Even if it means I was just infectious two weeks ago and I'm in the recovery phase now, no longer infectious or contagious, but I still want, it's kind of like a detective going back to a crime scene. The crime is no longer happening, but you still want to use molecular tools to detect who was there at the crime scene. On the other hand, these rapid tests, they are designed to stop spread, to identify infectious people. And the important thing is if you're trying to identify infectious people, these tests are perfectly sensitive they are essentially identifying over 90, 95% of people when they're, when they're actually in their infectious period. And that's because when you're in your infectious period, you have tons of virus, you're teeming with virus. So even a lower sensitivity test will easily detect people who are infectious. On the other hand, when we're asking about what's the accuracy, we have to deal with, we have to think about, are they giving, is there, is there a false positive? From a public health perspective, PCR is actually not specific to contagious virus. And this is where people have been really confused. We have PCR is specific to know that if it's positive, it usually means that the RNA of the virus is there, but it doesn't tell you at all if you're infectious today or were infectious two weeks ago. And this has been a a major problem because people continue to compare, like our regulatory agencies like the FDA compare a rapid antigen test to a PCR test. The antigen test is specific. It will only turn positive when you're contagious. And a PCR test will stay positive for weeks after you're contagious. So it really depends on the question we're trying to ask. And and in many ways, even though the PCR test has been deemed uh, infallible and the gold standard, it is actually not a specific test. It doesn't tell you if you actually need to isolate. You could have gone completely through and recovered from your infection and still be PCR positive. So in many ways, it's not specific. And that's being confused with the rapid antigen test being not sensitive to catch people in those later stages of of recovery. So just so I'm clear, the bottom line is that if I have COVID and I'm in that infectious stage, this, these rapid antigen tests are likely to catch 90 to 95% of those cases? That's exactly right, yep. And are we also worried about false positives? 
how how common are false positives in these rapid tests compared to the more standard tests? So the rapid tests have changed. Well, they haven't changed in their core technology, but they've gotten a lot better. The initial rapid tests, like the Quidel-Sophia test and the BD Veritor test, these were two rapid tests that actually had instruments associated with them. Um, they were getting actually pretty high false positive rates, like 1%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're testing a million people, 1% is actually a, a lot of people that are going to have a false positive, but they've changed so much. Uh, we've been, uh, we've had a study going with Citibank recently where we're testing, uh, we're using tests, thousands and thousands and thousands of tests have been used. Uh, we've done this on college campuses as well, and we haven't yet gotten false positives. So the tests are actually, the rapid antigen tests are actually becoming more specific, fewer false positives than even PCR. And we've actually been able to identify a number of PCR false positives using the rapid tests. And that's because we find that people are, are negative and negative and negative, and then we get a positive on a PCR, but then somebody's negative again. And we were able to go and evaluate that with rapid tests and find uh, we, we essentially did some investigations. We ran multiple different PCRs on people and found that essentially these tests are having uh, similar to or even fewer false positives compared to PCR laboratory tests. But the tests aren't all equal. Uh, you know, the, these are, um, there's a few really good uh, rapid antigen tests. And then again, there's some, just like anything, there's some PCR labs that are good, some that are bad some rapid antigen test companies that are really good and some that aren't so great. So let's talk about the regulatory landscape. How many of these tests, if any, have actually been approved for use in the U.S.? So um, there have been uh, a handful of them that have been approved for use and are used um, under a prescription order. But most, almost every single test that's been provided in the U.S. comes with a prescription still, even if people don't realize they're paying for a prescription. Uh, there's a doctor at the other end signing a, a prescription, and that raises cost. So for prescription use, there's been maybe five different um, rapid tests that have actually been uh, utilized so far. The major two in this form factor, these like simple paper strip type of rapid tests, it's really been only three. It's been Abbott, uh, Binex now, Quidel, QuickView, and, uh, and a smaller company called Access Bio. But are any of these available for at-home use? For example, I know the Abbott Binex is being used in places like schools and nursing homes. Is there anything that, you know, I can buy off the counter and take home to my house? Uh, only if you're willing to pay a lot more um, to have a doctor watch you on Zoom use it. Um, so they are only being used, uh, they're only available at home uh, right now with a prescription. And so even if you you know, the, these tests are so easy that you don't really need a prescription to use it. Um, but the Binex now, for example, you can purchase for $125 for a pack of five. Um, you can get them at your home and then you have to kind of swab while some, somebody uh, is watching you over the computer, which ultimately what that means is it loses access. You know, you really reduce access and you create barriers that aren't needed. Uh, a lot of people are actually going and just buying the five pack of tests with this prescription service. And then they just never log. They use the test on their own and they just don't log into the computer to, you know, have somebody watch them because um, that's invasive and, and it's really unnecessary at this point. Um, so there are a few, those two are available um, for at home use with a prescription. 
There is, uh, there is one test uh, which is authorized for true over-the-counter purchase, and that's called the Illum test. It is, um, uh, it's not going to be a, a game changer in terms of the accessibility. It's uh, every test, it's disposable. And, uh, but every test has a battery and Bluetooth chips and circuit boards. And, uh, and, and frankly, it's, a, it's, a, it's the kind of test that really doesn't need to exist. Um, it isn't any better than the Binex now or the Quidel or, uh, or any number of other tests that haven't yet been authorized by the FDA, but it's got all these circuit boards and, and stuff. And it's just, it's, a, it's wasteful in my opinion. You know, it could just be a piece of paper, but instead it is designed to sort of be very high techy, And that has been authorized for over the counter, um, but, uh, but it's not gonna scale very high. It's gonna be very expensive and it's gonna be you know, somewhat of a, a luxury item that also harms the environment. <laughs> What, so how are these tests being used right now? Is it mostly in institutional settings? Yeah, they're, they're mostly being used um, in, uh, in nursing homes and schools to a certain extent, especially in Massachusetts. They're being used uh, to deconvolute the pools. So Kate, like schools, for example, are using pooled PCR tests. Um, and then when you get a positive pool, you have to figure out, okay, who in the pool? So pool testing is when you take a bunch of swabs and you stick them together in a tube and you run all of those as one PCR reaction, one PCR test. So if it's negative, you assume everyone in the pool is negative and you can, you can you know, call everyone negative. But if a pool is positive, you need to figure out, okay, who, who caused this pool to turn positive? Whose swab was positive? And so the Binex now is actually being used in Massachusetts as a way to quickly figure out which one, if you have 10 kids who each contributed a swab to a pool, and that pool turned positive, you can then go and test each of those 10 with a Binex Now test to determine uh, who is the positive person. So that's kind of how a lot of these tests are being used at the moment. Um, schools and congregate settings, still all under prescription use and, um, and under the sort of uh, a more regulated uh, CLIA waiver environment where you actually have to have, uh, you have to be a facility that is um, sort of uh, has been allowed to, to administer these tests. You've been saying you don't think it actually needs a prescription. So why is a prescription required? Why aren't these tests more widely available? Uh, there is no reason, there is absolutely no reason in the United States right now why a COVID test should, be, should require a physician's prescription. The FDA requirement of these tests to have prescriptions is no longer the FDA is not helping public health here. The FDA's formal stance is that a doctor can order, you know, a prescription for 100,000 people at once in bulk bulk prescriptions. This is a this is not public health. This is not a good use of regulation. This is this is essentially an abuse of the purpose of a medical prescription like or it's it's the FDA requiring that that we that as a doctor, I should not, I should not be forced to, to write a prescription for 100,000 people who I don't know, just so that they can have a test. You know, this is a, like, it's a corrosion of medicine uh, in my, and I know that those sound like strong words, but, but there truly is this far into a pandemic when half a million people have died and every American, you know, at some point maybe wants to get uh, a test. 
it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to go through a doctor to, to just know if you have virus in your nose for this virus, uh, for, you know, for this, uh, for this pandemic, you should be able to just know you should be allowed to go and get a test on your own or order a test and have it delivered to your house. Uh, maybe we create some uh, reporting system where it's like Amazon, you know, one click ordering, you could have one click reporting. Uh, we could have done this. And instead, the FDA has taken this really backwards path of saying, everyone needs a prescription still. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm not much for conspiracy theories, but it's hard to it's hard to wrap my head around this when, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars are being made on prescription services right now. Um, truly, this has become like a, a big money industry. And it's hard to, to let that go. When, when you ask, why does somebody need a prescription at this point? It's a good question. I think we should all be asking. We should all be arguing that, hey, I should be allowed to know if I have virus in my nose if my kid went to school and has virus in their nose without having to go through a doctor at this point. Who can make that change? Does Congress have the authority? Is there anything states can do or is it fully the FDA? Um, so there are some things that states, so some states are starting to say, okay, we're just going to write a blanket prescription for the whole state. I mean, it's, it's a crazy workaround. Um, and, but it's, what Texas has done, for example. Um, uh, what I would like to see is the president of the United States write a presidential order that essentially is pretty straightforward that says uh, these tests, that public health testing no longer needs a medical prescription, period. You know, there is no reason why it, it shouldn't, it's not even a medical, you know, public health testing, especially the recent CDC guidelines from last week are very clearly stating this is a public health need. The FDA regulates medical diagnostics. So what's happening, the reason why this is remaining in this kind of gray zone is because nobody owns these tests. The FDA, um, the FDA wipes their hands clean of public health testing. They say, we don't regulate public health tests. But, and so, you know, I had this conversation with them back in April and May of last year. I said, okay, great. So these tests can be um, authorized or validated by the CDC or something and, um, and certified as like a public health test. They said, if it's a public health test, we don't regulate it. But um, does the test give results back to the individual in a way that ca might cause them to change their behavior? And so of course the answer is yes, it's a rapid test. It will give you a result back. And they said, ah, well then that defines it as a medical diagnostic test. So it does fall under a prescription use type of case. So unfortunately, they're living in this purgatory. We have this public health test that is for just historical reasons being deemed and defined as a, as a medical diagnostic test. CMS and the Centers for Medicaid Services could create change. HHS, Health and Human Services for the US could redefine this or could classify it. I think the easiest approach without setting major precedent is for the president to create a, a presidential order that says these are these are needed public health tools. The, the CDC is now suggesting how to use them as public health tools. The White House has come out and said these should be public health tools. So I think the president could, you know, the right advisement um, potentially write an order that says, look, these tests can be regulated or can be uh, maybe given a stamp of approval by the CDC you know, that these are the ones that, the, that can be used in America, for example. Um, 
and they don't require prescriptions and they should all be available to, to different public health programs. So let's say we can get through these regulatory barriers and somehow these rapid tests are made available, you know, in your neighborhood CVS or Walgreens. What's their potential for stopping the spread? Well, what I would really like to see is for the government, for the federal government to actually provide the tests, ideally for free to people, um, in, to their homes. If every, uh, we can go back in time and then we can talk about what's, how they might be used in the future, but had we had, had the regulatory barriers been broken down in the summer of last year, and the companies that could produce these were actually allowed to produce them at scale, uh, there's many companies that are being held back by the FDA at the moment um, uh, and have been for, for many months now. So had those companies kind of been released to, to produce their tests uh, at scale and get them out into the public domain last summer, we could have seen the, the surges of the fall and winter that happened and killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. Those could have been largely prevented. That might sound crazy, but to stop outbreaks from growing out of control, you just need to have protective measures and, and um, mitigating strategies in place so that if you have 100 infected people, if you can get 100 infected people to just go and infect 90, it doesn't have to go to zero. But if those 100 people can go and infect 90 new people, then you, you don't end up having Rs below one, we call it in epidemiologic terms, and the outbreak doesn't spread. So had we had these programs going where every household in, in September had 20 tests available and they were able to just tw test twice a week, for example, we could have potentially had enough people know that they were infectious in real time to stop 100 people from going and infecting 130 or 40 other people and get them to infect 90. That would have essentially stopped the major outbreaks that we saw this fall and winter from occurring. It's the thing about epidemics, they either grow exponentially or they fall exponentially and it's a razor thin line between the two. So that's how they could have been used. We could have potentially prevented hundreds of thousands of additional deaths had we started using them last fall. So given where we are now though, with the vaccine is out there, people are actually starting to get vaccinated. Do we still need these? Uh, we, I, my opinion is yes. Um, I think we're going to see a big reprieve right now. We're going to see cases drop down and there's going to be a lot of breathing room for, for people. But, um, you know, I was saying this exactly at this time last, last year when people said, okay, you know, we're closing down and we're going to like be, be, uh, reopening things in April. Are we going to need mitigating strategies? And at that time last year, I said, yes, we need to prepare for the fall. The content, even though we have vaccines right now, there is a very good chance that we will see a resurgence this fall. And uh, ideally it won't come with massive hospitalizations and deaths, but we're seeing variants. We're seeing all sorts of, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing breakthrough cases. Um, ideally we will have very good levels of immunity, um, but elderly people in particular are going to likely not retain their immunity very well. New variants like the Brazilian P1 variant and the B1351 variant, these mutations are breaking through people's neutralizing antibodies. They're breaking through people's immunity. So what I think we should be doing today is preparing for that eventuality. 
And let's hope that it doesn't come about, but it's a small cost to get these tests out to the public. It's a very small relative to that. We just passed a $1.9 trillion bill. These tests could be gotten for less than 0.1% of that bill. The whole country could have tests for six months. So it's a really small price to get the tests out in case we need them. And if we don't need them, we don't have to tell people to be testing every two days or every three days you know, for infinity. The nice thing about them is we can just send people a text message. You, know, you could have governments set that up and say, hey, you get a text message if we want you to start using your tests again every, twice a week. Or hey, you get a text message that says, no more cases in your community. You can put the tests aside for now. And if we detect new cases through hospitalizations or wastewater surveillance, we might ask you to start using them again. It can be a really low, you know, uh, uh, it can be a dynamic process with these tests because they're so scalable and deployable. And before we wrap up, what is the cost or what would be the cost for deploying these tests nationwide? Uh, about $20 billion if we wanted to get them to most households across the United States as a public health tool for, for six months straight, um, which might sound like a lot, uh, but 20 billion is really a, a, a drop in the bucket compared to the cost of having to close down. Uh, $20 billion is essentially what this country has purged every single day as a result of this virus since last year. Uh, and so, the, to the average person, 20 billion sounds like a huge number, um, but in the context of our, global, of our national response, it is a very, very small amount of money that would need to be put aside given its potential to truly affect, uh, affect change. And in fact, uh, the money has been put aside now by the Biden administration in the American Recovery Act. Uh, $47 billion was put aside for testing, just last week, 12 billion was put aside for um, screening testing for K through eight and K through 12 schools. Uh, unfortunately, because the regulatory hurdles don't have enough of these rapid tests available, it means that in even more money is gonna be put into trying to set up more PCR labs and PCR is more expensive, more costly to run. Uh, so we're gonna end up spending more money, not less to, to do the same type of testing and it will in a less effective way. And you can read more about the COVID pandemic and the response at commonwealthmagazine.org. Harvard epidemiologist, Dr. Michael Minna, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks a lot.